Hello my guys, my gals and my non-binary pals. Welcome along to today's episode of the Peter Greenwood Show podcast. My name is Peter Greenwood. I am delighted to have your company. On today's show we are continuing our look at the Fringe Festival. I've got three interviews coming up for you and we are going to meet Phoebe Angeli, whose name I probably completely butchered and she is talking to us about her play Ithaca. Let's have a listen. Can I start by asking your name and what you do please? Sure, my name is Phoebe Anjani and I am a theatre maker. How are you today, Phoebe? Are you well? I'm doing so well. How are you, Peter? I'm very well, thanks. It's it's nice, but it's it was a bit grey and murky this morning, but you know, it's 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 brightened up a bit. But we're not here to discuss weather, we are here to discuss your show. It is called If If I practice this. If, <laughs> Ithica. Ithaca, yes. Ithaca, yeah. yes, got it right. Yes, because yes. I keep on wanting, I keep wanting to go like F instead of th, so nice. <laughs> Ithaca, but yes. So yes, let's discuss Ithaca. Where did it come from? What's your origin story? So uh, Ithaca is basically a one-woman autobiographical of Homer's Odyssey, um, and for me, Homer's Odyssey has always been like my favorite thing. Um, I found it when I was about 12. I was a very awkward child, didn't have very many friends. So uh, I was a library kid uh, and I just have continued reading it in different adaptations throughout my life. Always wanted to do something with it theatrically since that's my career. Um, And, you know, with lockdowns and the pandemic and everything, things just kind of lined up and I finally had the time and I said you know what we're doing it now. <laughs> Homer's Odyssey is not light reading shall no. we say. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've gotten through bits of it admittedly I haven't finished it but it's 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 a, it's how, how would you describe Homer's Odyssey for those who don't know? Homer's Odyssey is this fantastic epic journey of a man called Odysseus who is leaving the Trojan War um, and trying to get home, basically. And it's about all of his trials and tribulations, sailing and the things he loses, the kind of selfhood that is destroyed and then recreated along the way. Um, It's really cool stuff, really powerful stuff. Um, Lots of excellent monsters and exciting adventures. So I love it. But you don't have to know the story to watch my show. Um, I was I was going to ask that like how <laughs> yeah. how in depth is Ithaca to the Homer's Odyssey story? I basically took the overarching themes of the Odyssey and a lot of the different characters that you'll find in the story and I've applied them to modern day circumstances um discussing contemporary social issues and uh, relating the more classical monsters to uh contemporary gods and monsters of today. So you'll recognize things like the UK home office. You'll recognize <laughs> things like uh, school bullies. You'll recognize, you know, all a whole bunch of characters that are, you know, very relatable to contemporary audiences. So you don't have to know the story at all. <laughs> now, I do want to ask, you're, whereabouts in, for, for the listeners, we were discussing this off air a bit, but whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm currently in San Francisco, California. So how did you, have you been to the Edinburgh Fringe before and how did you approach the Fringe for this story? Yeah, the Edinburgh Fringe is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Um, I went to university at St. Andrews, so I was just up the road, basically. Um, So I performed in two fringes before this one. 
Um, and then uh, the pandemic hit uh, and I had to come back to the States because, you know, family being connected with everyone, it's just important in these times. Um, and so, but in the back of my head was always, oh, I need to get back to the fringe. I love the fringe, just like that camaraderie and artists getting together and seeing cool shows. Um, so I was, I knew I was doing it. I was coming back whenever the fringe was ready for me. Um, and then in adapting Ithaca for the fringe, I obviously had to make it a digital production because I'm also a one woman team over here. Um, because I was separated from most of the people that I typically work with in the UK, um, I'm a one woman operation on and off screen. Um, so digital production made that possible basically because I could perform, write, direct, film, edit myself in different ways. Um, so in making Ithaca for the Edinburgh Fringe, I was really excited to play with experimental film a little bit, get some cool effects in, get some cool, more cinematic techniques in that would be more of a translation of theatrical style to a screen environment. Because um, I wanted to make it still intimate for the audience and still feel like there's that connection with the performer. I want to ask, and I don't quite know how to ask this, what was it like putting the story together in these trying times as they're <laughs> known and adapting it from being in being in a physical space in front of people to doing a digital, digital, digital only version? It was super wild, Peter. It was super wild. Um, I made the whole show from, you know, beginning to end in a 16 square foot room uh, in my house. And so working in a, a blacked out room for, you know, all hours of the day for months at a time by yourself is a little bit, uh, it, you know, you confront your inner demons a bit. Um, but I can also imagine. Yeah. Um, but it's also a really good kind of creative incubator I've found because, you know, there was no one else to be like, um, to bounce ideas off of. So I could really, you know, get in touch with my own creative intuition and, and see what I came up with. So it was definitely challenging, uh, but it was also, it was also quite fun to do. When you're in that space and you're putting it together, there are some, I imagine some dark themes from what I know of the Odyssey. How do you not let that get to you? Well, uh, therapy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm actually in the room right now. I can just about like reach out and touch the walls where I made the show. Um, but, and it's because it's an autobiographical show as well. So it's my life story. Um, it's the themes are quite dark and they are quite personal to me as well. Um, but I'm super lucky because I've been in therapy since I was two years old. Um, so I'm real, my emotional intelligence is quite high <laughs> and also my processing level for emotions is super high. So if I ever had like a bad couple of weeks on the project, I could go to my therapist and be like, look, <laughs> I just need to clear this out, <laughs> restart <laughs> so I can get back to work and do a good job. I'm going to stop this recording because there's a new, there's a few things I need to speak to you about. I feel like <laughs> you can help me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been the reaction from people who have seen it already? What's that feedback been like? I've actually been blown away, Peter. It's been like, you know, so creating the show by myself in a 16 square foot room in San Francisco, California, I'm thinking, you know, 
I like it. It's something that it's my ideas. It's my brainchild. It's something that I resonate with, but you know, it's my story. I don't know how other people are going to handle it. Um, but wow. Uh, first day at the Edinburgh Fringe, four stars from the Scotsman front page of their festival section. Then five star reviews are coming in and I'm just like, oh, wow, <laughs> people like my stuff. Like It's like, you know, that um, that old Hollywood quote, they like me, they really like me, um, where I'm just I'm just so glad that people have been able to see themselves within the story and like resonate with the themes and that they think the style is cool and that it's not just something that classics geeks will like because they recognize, you know, the, the character names from somewhere. Um, Cause I created this story, you know, mostly to, to share right with people, because I think a lot of the topics that I discuss in Ithaca are not traditionally discussed in public forum. They're a little bit taboo sometimes because, you know, talking about your personal trauma is not something that people like to do every day. <laughs> yeah. But um, I figured that, you know, I'm quite comfortable with it. I'm, you know, in a place in my life where I've processed through it. So if I can at least start the conversation, then it'll normalize things a bit more and raise awareness for how prevalent these issues are. You know, I've had people messaging me being like, I watched your show. I cried. It was beautiful. I felt, you know, so connected with the character. And I thought back to myself, you know, when I was younger and facing these problems, when I was, you know, in my early teens, late teens, um, I would have loved to have had someone to look up to, to think, wow, they've, they've been through some of the same things that I've been through, but they're out the other side. They're happy. They're, you know, doing what they love in life. Um, so if I can be that for somebody watching my show, that was, you know, the main goal for me. So I'm just, I'm just so happy people like it. <laughs> I want to ask this and it may be kind of a personal question, but sure. as an, as an actress, you, as a performer, you, for want of a better term, go into the character, you you hide behind the character. When you're putting yourself in front and center, how does that change you as a person and a performer? I think uh, this show has definitely been the most challenging show that I've been in because of that. Um, I've, I've described it to a couple of people, especially in the waiting time before, you know, when the show is finished, before people would see it. It's almost like, you kind of take your heart out of your chest and you put it on a table and then you just wait for people to come by and look at your heart and see if they like it or resonate with it or not. And it's just like this feeling of, you know, ultimate like care for the project and care for the work. And it is so vulnerable because it is my life. Um, so the stakes were a little bit higher on this one for me, but it was also quite cool because I think as a lot of performers, a lot of theater people, arts people do, I started out in the career um, when I was quite little as, uh, you know, a route of escapism to get away from my life and to escape into characters. So I just, uh, it's kind of ironic and it's also a little bit um, beautiful that I've been able to bring myself as a character forward um, and really inhabit that and enjoy inhabiting that character. So it's kind of a full circle moment. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. <laughs> Mostly. I, yeah, there, there are a few days here and yeah. there, but I imagine <laughs> most, for the most part, you do, you do what you can. Definitely. 
I'd like to ask about the production of it because you said you filmed it all in your room, the room you're in right now for the, mm-hmm. li- the radio listeners who aren't watching this interview. Hello, radio listeners. <laughs> Hi, radio listeners. <laughs> but what was it like doing that and then going to have to work on all the effects? Because I watched the trailer and there's a few kind of effects laid in shots in, the tra- in that trailer. How did you do all that? So uh, it was actually, it was a very frustrating and kind of funny experience Um, working with cameras that are supposed to be focusing on you and you're supposed to be in front of the camera, but you're also behind the camera trying to focus on yourself was uh, a very odd little dance (laughs) that I had to learn. Um, And then it was, you know, another layer of kind of self-introspection, right? Watching back all of the footage and being the one responsible for the editing and everything. And um, I think a lot of people find it uncomfortable to watch themselves on camera or listen yes. to themselves. Uh, and it was kind of a trial through fire of that for me because <laughs> now after, you know, months of doing it, uh, I'm pretty, pretty numbed out to seeing myself on camera. Um but yeah, it was a great challenge. And with the effects and everything, I loved experimenting with that and just playing with different film techniques and masking and overlays and such cool stuff. <laughs> Again, I'm going to have to stop this because I'm going to need your help with a few things. Yeah. It's one of those, I know this is about you, but if I may share a story, I've got Please. hours of audio, hours of footage that I've never touched because I am in it and mm. I I'm not a fan of me. I don't like the host of the Peter Greenwood show. It's, it's a wild time. No, Peter. <laughs> so I've got all this stuff I've never touched. And every so often I think, oh, I should do something with it. But then I, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, that's me. So it's how do you learn to work through all that? I think for me, it was a case of separating myself from like ego in a sense. Um, which is easy to do when you're really, really tired and you just have to get the job done. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of a moment of, you know, I wore all the hats of this production. So producer self would be like, uh, okay, Phoebe, you have, you know, today to edit this shot, to edit this scene, you need to get it done. Director me would be looking, okay, what's the composition of this? You know, can I work with something else? The cinematographer was looking at like all the little details of that. Um, and the actor just kind of got pushed to the side <laughs> and all the other uh, more production aspects of the job were uh, kind of in charge. <laughs> so it would be kind of a thing where you'd be watching it and actor Phoebe would be like, oh, my my eye makeup is a bit messed up. Could we do it again? And director Phoebe's like, no, no, <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. I can't. Exactly, exactly. Actor Phoebe would be thinking, oh no, I hate my face in that scene. And director Phoebe would be thinking, look, you got the shot. This is what we wanted. And this is the authentic human experience. So you got to deal with it. And it was just, yeah, a moment of kind of third person watching myself and coaching myself through any insecurities that I might have. (laughs) Again, healthy. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I want to ask a little bit about After the Fringe. What is the life of Ithaca? Ithaca. I can't say it. It's it's completely gone. What is the life of your play, (laughs) your story, your piece of work after the Fringe? What's What's next for it? After the Fringe, you know, I've given that a lot of thought. And I think that part of the trouble that like I'm up against is we don't know how restrictions are going to be, you know, dealt with in the coming months. We don't know how live performance is going to come back, where it's going to come back first. Um, I know a lot of 
theaters in San Francisco are quite like, you know, they're putting it off more. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, well, at least I have the virtual adaptation. So I can start with virtual touring. And then once the theaters open back up again, I would love to take it to the, the stage. I think that it would be such a, such a cool show to be in person with the audience and like really feel that energy. Cause that's what I missed so much during production of the show is just, is, is that feedback. Yeah, that would be so cool. Because again, there's a lot of effects on it. And to be so cool to see it done live, to see it all come together and all the machinations that happen to make it work, that would be very cool. Very very cool. Very cool. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it would be interesting to see how it would translate again for theater because I wrote it first for theater. Um, That was my initial desire uh, was to play to a live audience. Uh, And then I had to readapt it and rethink the kind of effects that I would want to do for screen. So then to take it back again to a theatrical environment, I would love to play with that. So in, in short, the answer is both. Uh, I think I'll do both with the show. <laughs> and it's your show. Why not? I know. Why not? I could have it virtually in Australia and live in the UK at the same time. I think that sounds like a blast. <laughs> what you should do is have it playing behind you. You act out on stage, but then argue with yourself in the background in the video. That's very meta. I love yes, this. <laughs> very cool. Phoebe, where can people find out more about you on online, on, on the social medias? Me online on the social medias are all pretty much going to be under my name, Phoebe, P-H-O-E-B-E, Anjani, A-N-G-E-N-I. And I have a little website that is www.phoebeanjani.com, which has literally everything. So yeah, that's probably the first port of call. Thank you so much for your time today. This was so much fun chatting to you. Good luck with Fringe. Thank you so much. It was lovely meeting you. And thank you for having me on your show, Peter. Ithaca is streaming on demand on the Edinburgh Fringe player for you to watch whenever you would like. Could I stop asking you your name and what you do, please? My name is Masha Dowell, and I am a performing artist, writer, and director for theater and film. How are you today? Are you well? Yes. Let's talk about your show. It is called Black Womanology. It is playing at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. What is your show? Where did it come from? It came from my observations of media headlines, I kept on seeing different headlines focus only and specifically about black women. And so I was just like, I wanted to explore it because it really, it really bothered me in a sense because I didn't see any other race or gender always heavily spoken about, investigated and things like that. And the reason why it bothered me is because I'm like, okay, I don't relate to all of the headlines. And so I created a one woman's show slash monologue about my journey so far, parts of my journey so far. And what can you tell us about your journey and putting the show together and what bits you put in and what bits you decided to leave out? Well, the bits that I like try to focus on the most was my career. Because I noticed in my career, because I'm a scientist by trade, I noticed that when I went from the sciences to the arts, I've like experienced the most probably like racism or situations where I got to know my race. Because I think one assumption that I see a lot of people make is that I was born black and that I just take on this role. And it's just like, no, that is not how it works. Each person 
they, you know, they adapt to their culture. So my play basically takes us on a journey for like with people that were my mentors. And in this situation, it wasn't just bosses, but it was coworkers. It was fellow actors that have taught me different lessons that I have like embedded or took with me with my black womanhood. And who are some of the women who did shape you when you were putting the story together? When I put it, uh, first off, it was my mother. And then it was my first boss at one of my jobs because my mom had like a prim and proper like ideology or what women were supposed to be, black women were supposed to be. And then my boss told me the opposite. She was like, no, you are the prize. And then from there, my coworkers and some of my fellow actors, they shaped me. So, And what was it like with your mom telling you one thing and your boss telling you another? Was it difficult to find a bridge between the two worlds and find a place where you fitted in? Yes, it was a, bri- it was a big challenge because my mom was very set in her ways about how like how my hair should look not it's natural my hair is like curly and like big and my mom would be like that's not proper it needs to be straightened you know it needs to be acceptable to society in america and you need to go to college you need to do this and that you need to dress this way um my first boss was more like no you have to choose what you want to do and how you want to identify and show up in the world. And to be honest, I'm still dealing with my mother. Thank God she's living, but I'm still dealing with her ways and thoughts of how I should be. But when I met Francine, it actually made me so inspired because I was just like, wow, I get to choose what type of black woman that I want to be in the world. I want to ask this, and I don't mean this to sound insensitive, and I apologize if it does, but putting yourself out in front of such a in such a public way how did you get to that what were some of the headlines that you wanted to challenge and how did you decide the the way to do it okay so one of the headlines that really was like what it was a headline that i read oh my gosh i wish i could remember this specific outlet but i believe it was like Harper Bazaar, and it was just like how I how I learned to love my big lips, and I'm just like, what are you talking about? And so I was just like, I've always loved my lips, and then it was another one about um, it was it was about something about hair, and I'm like, well, I loved my hair, but I understand it. So basically, it was all these outrageous headlines from smoking marijuana and and like and culturally just different different things about how black women should be and I just got really really curious about why don't we unpack it like there's the reasons why people feel that way that are black women why don't we talk about it instead of just assigning these traits And as an actor and artist, the reason why I wanted to present this to the world is not because I'm really trying to explain it, but it's more so for other fellow global Black women so we can kind of unpack how did we get here? How do we get to certain places in our life? And also 
can we take some of these articles back and make them more authentic for us? That sounds like it'd be a really challenging process to try and, first yes. of all, what what am I trying to say here? To first of all, like, understand the article, like, why are you writing this? What is, why are you yes. putting it this way? And then to try and work through all the millions of thoughts you have about the article to try and crystallize it down into into a point you'd like to make yes yeah i mean it was it's a pro it's a challenging process of course i didn't do everything but what i could do is use my own life as kind of like a like an experiment or unpack my own life through telling showing people how i've learned so many different ways of being a black woman from their own black womanhood. And so that's the way I decided to tell the story or tell my story rather. So I'd like to ask a little bit about putting the show together because you're in okay. North Carolina at the moment. I yes. You said. Mm -hmm. And how did you get in touch with the fringe and put the show together for the fringe? Well, the way that I learned about the fringe was I actually did this same show, but another version of it, which was, you know, full blocking and everything like that in Los Angeles. And so um, I heard everybody always whispering like, oh, the big festival is the Edinburgh. And so I would listen, but I never did anything about it. Well, then the pandemic happened and I decided to get a rental in my home state of North Carolina. And so one day I was online and then I got a notification about um, the fringe going on and then people could submit a show to play online. And so I was going to um, submit a show that I did in 2018, but I was like, that's old. And I've grown from that, you know, those years or whatever. And so that's how it came about. I mean, even back in 2018, the world was a vastly different place to what it is now. Yes, yes. And so I had to rewrite it um, I, the director that I hired, she was actually here from New York. So she helped give, provide direction. And then even the videographer for this project, he is based in Seattle and he had moved back home because of the pandemic. So the crew and everybody came together. I rented a theater here, which was so much more affordable than Los Angeles. So oh, I can imagine, I know <laughs> it all worked out. And so, yeah, that's how it came about altogether. But I first heard about the Edinburgh Fringe in 2018. So, mm -hmm. Hopefully next year you can make it in person to the Fringe in 2022. I know, because my purpose this year was really to connect with fellow global artists. Because um, I love, like, America. I love being American. But it's I learned so much from, um, like, the international uh, spectrum of artists. So. I want to ask a little bit, going back a little bit, you mentioned you used to be a scientist and then you got into the arts. Yes. What was it that inspired you to leave science and try this new career? Well, okay, first I was an art, like I was an artist. Like when I was a little girl, I was writing plays and performing it with my best friend in the basement of my best friend's house. However, going back to my mom, she will always be like, well, I don't think that's a stable career. I don't believe that that is something that can support you and it's not professional or presentable. So what happened is I stayed in the sciences for 
a little over 10 years. And then I was laid off from this really like great job, but I was laid off. And then I challenged myself to go one year and be a freelance artist, like do acting, writing, directing, and to make money and to pay my rent. And so I did it. And this was in Atlanta. I did it. I met my challenge. And so that's what made me eventually transition all the way. Going into the future, after The Fringe, what is the future for Black Womanology? Where do you see it going? Well, what I would like to do is to clean it up. I want, because the work that I submitted to The Fringe is a work in progress. I would like to, like, hash, like, write it out more. And I would like to perform it in front of colleges and organizations. I would like to um, write a book of short stories because I have so many more short stories that helped shape me as a black woman. And um, that's pretty much it. I just want people to know, like particularly global black women and other people to know like it's a process in being a black woman. Like we are three, like three dimensional characters and projects. And it's more than just one type of way to be a black woman. Where can people find out more about you and about black womanology online? So they can find out about me on all of our social media outlets on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Masha, M-A-S-H-A, Dowell, D-O-W-E-L-L. And for Black Womanology, it's the same as at Black Womanology, and that's everywhere online. And you can find out all about where it's streaming and how long it's streaming for and Yes, it is streaming until the 30th via Edinburgh, let me see, um, Fringe Player, because it's online demand until August 30th, online. That's an interesting dimension to it this year. Like, I'm so glad the Fringe is back, but having a Fringe Player where you can just stay at home and watch is such an interesting dimension to it. It's, it's, I hope it works. It's, it's. It has worked so far. Yes. Like, so far it's worked. People have been reaching out to me with questions and talking about it afterwards. So it's exciting because I'm connecting with people from all over the world that are watching it at home. And so I'm like, oh crap, you know, so it's exciting. (laughs) And it's very cool as well. Like the Fringe has always been a global arts festival, but you had to come to Edinburgh for it. Whereas now Edinburgh is going to the world and all this material can be seen everywhere. And it's a very exciting time. Yes, it is. And hopefully next year, hopefully the pandemic can, you know, can be, I don't even know if a word is better. Hopefully it's, it's safe enough for uh, mm. for me to travel to Edinburgh because I would like to see plays and perform live. So, Well, uh, we'll keep in touch and do let me know if you make it to Edinburgh for 2022. It'd be lovely to sit down and talk to you there and again. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Black Womanology is streaming on demand anytime you would like to watch it on the Fringe Player. Can I stop asking you your name and what you do, please? Hi, so my name is Neve Murphy and I'm an actor, writer and maker. And I'm the writer of Cashpoint Meet in Edinburgh Fringe. How are you today? Are you well? I'm great. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. Let's talk about your show. You said it's called Cashpoint Meet. What is this show? Where did it come from? <laughs> yeah, so this is the first play that I've written. Um, and I kind of first started writing for a performance when I was doing a foundation diploma in the Lear Academy. And uh, we kind of had some writing workshops and stuff for that. And I found when I was writing, a lot of the topics that I was interested in kind of surrounded 
intimacy, friendship, relationships, and then also the kind of social landscape that we live in. So like social problems, work, nightlife, basically kind of what it means to be a young person in Dublin. Um, and so I was interested in kind of workers' rights and finding, I don't know, a new way of operating outside of this kind of capitalistic work, work, work mode that we find ourselves in. Um, and then at the same time, I came across this concept of a cash point meet, which is a part of financial domination involving a client meeting a dom at an ATM um, and giving the dom permission to take their money. Um, so I, I came across this concept and I remember I was sitting in the resource room in college and I, I told somebody about this. I was like, this is a bit mad. And um, they were like, that'd be a great idea for a play. <laughs> um, and here we are, like two years later. <laughs> so what is the play? Tell us a little bit about the story of it. Yeah, so it follows two young women, Emma and Sinead, uh, who are both, you know, 20-somethings living in Dublin. Um, Sinead is an artist and she's a visual artist and she's kind of trying to make it into that kind of gallery world, trying to sell her art. Um, and Emma is kind of working night shifts at a fast food restaurant. Um, and it's very kind of fun and um, fun and high energy because even though the girls are maybe not doing so well in their lives, they still like to have fun and they still like to go out and have a laugh and they have to try and find the good parts. And um, so then they stumble upon this uh, cash point meet opportunity. Um, and so this is kind of an opportunity for them to get some quick money, uh, you know, relatively easily or on the surface anyway um, and you know they go into this kind of world and I guess we'll see where it leads. <laughs> hijinks since you. Yeah hijinks. <laughs> of, a, of a sort I imagine because I'd never heard of this term cash point meat and now you've explained that I, I, I don't quite know what to make of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of it. It's a very like specific one, I suppose. Yes. And I suppose it's interesting to look at in terms of kind of sex work, because I suppose when I heard about it first, I wouldn't have really, I don't know, associated it with sex work in particular, because it seems quite removed and it seems quite, you know, tran I suppose, you know, just money transactional, yeah. uh, if that makes sense. Um, in that, like, you know, it doesn't involve any touching or that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, no, it's interesting to kind of look at that with the girls kind of stepping into it and how their views are formed on it and uh, kind of where sex work sits with them at the beginning and at any particular point throughout their relationship with it. I want to ask a little bit about the content of the show because when you approach somebody and was like, yeah, it's this kind of fetish, like if that's the opening line, how hard do you get what was it like pitching the show to people <laughs> um yeah it's interesting because I think um a lot of the show is focused on Emma and Sinead and their relationship and um, like their friendship and um yeah I suppose it's not like I wouldn't come to the show expecting this kind of tell-all peep show kind of very um I don't know what's the word like glamorized or this kind of I don't know this kind of very like uh glamorized view of sex work I think I think it's more so focused on kind of the reality of it and Emma and Sinead as people because I think like often sex workers can be kind of reduced to symbols of like 
you know, they're either a symbol of like the trauma inflicted on all women and the patriarchy and all of this kind of stuff, or like, you know, the opposite that they're like this symbol of empowerment and it's amazing, but really like they're just people, you know, <laughs> they're just doing a job that they often have to do like, like everyone, I suppose. So um, yeah, I guess when I was pitching the show, we did a work in progress version of it back in uh, February, 2020, just before the world shut down. Mm. Um, and that was kind of the first uh, 20 minutes of the show. So that kind of like led up until the point where they were maybe deciding that they might do this. So um, we got a lot of great feedback off of that. And I suppose the focus of the show was more so like on fun, on Emma and Sinead's relationship, and um, just being a young person in Dublin. So I think it's kind of relatable to everyone, even if you don't participate in this kind of uh, fetish world. What was it like putting the show together during these trying times as they're known? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely um, a challenge in, in that it was a very new way of working because you know, we had the show, it's written as a play, and then we decide we're going to put it on as a film version for Edinburgh Fringe. Um, so then you kind of like, yeah, you're kind of working then with like, you know, our DOPs and like with the, uh, with the Wexford Arts Centre where we were filming, where like everyone is kind of like, we have some experience in theatre, we have experience in film, how can we bring this together and make this kind of hybrid um, theater film uh, show and how can we use that to our advantage as well like you know how can we um, take this kind of new format and make it exciting and make it really interesting so um, yeah it was it was definitely different and you know we had our antigen tests at rehearsals and all of that kind of stuff but um, yeah no it was really it was really interesting and I think we all learned a lot as well what has been the reaction from the audience? You mentioned the work in progress version got a lot of feedback. A lot of people liked how fun it was. Did you try to go into that to finish the rest of the story? Um, well, leaning into the fun side, I think I think it does get like a little bit more serious at times, and um, you know, throughout the rest of the play. Um, but I think the characters of I mentioned remain. I hope quite accessible um, to to like an audience member because I suppose the audience at the beginning of the play are kind of M and Sinead because at the beginning of the play M and Sinead don't know what it is they're really getting into they don't know what a cash point mate is so I hope that the audience can kind of go on this journey with them and that it doesn't you know it doesn't seem like jarring or really foreign because they're kind of going into this world with M and Sinead kind of holding their hand <laughs> so um yeah and like there definitely is a lot of like fun moments in the in the play and like you know kind of a lot of commentary around like Dublin and I suppose like the world in general though as well so hopefully Edinburgh audiences will also get the kind of <laughs> um, being young and uh, unsure in the world. <laughs> I mean, we've all been young. We've all not known which way we're going. I'm 35 and I've still no idea. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Yeah. But how did you go about crafting Emma and Sinead and making them friends, but also making them different from each other? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting because I think when I was first starting to write, I thought you do take an inspiration from, you know, people in your when you're writing your know, people in your life, you know, your own, like your own kind of views on things or 
your own, um, I don't know, ways of being in the world <laughs> kind of does feed into your writing, I suppose. So it was interesting when I started developing it then further and kind of really like getting the characters that I mentioned and, you know, well, this is how they're different. This is how, this is what they agree on. And this is how they're friends and kind of building this whole very strong um, kind of relationship to uh, with them um, before the beginning of the play. Um, because, you know, people can be friends and be very different. Like, you know, they don't have to agree on everything. And, you know, I mentioned might have very different views on things or they might not realize how different they are. Um, and that's something that they have to learn. So I think that's a very important part of the play though as well, because if they're, if they're just going along agreeing with each other on everything, then it wouldn't be much of a show. <laughs> yeah, to end after about 12 minutes with a friendly handshake and a pat on the back. Yeah, yeah, we're all friends here. Nobody's mean. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. We're fine. Let's, let's yeah, just go and do this. <laughs> <laughs> good job, Emma. Good job, Sinead. Let's go home. Yeah. Credits. <laughs> I want to ask a little bit. When it comes to putting the show together, how do you begin casting for these roles? Oh, well, a bit of, a bit of nepotism there because I cast myself as Emma. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, no, well, so in, uh, in the initial production we did when we did a work in progress, um, we got uh, this girl who I've been in college with, Jess, uh, Jessen Perkins, who was great. Um, and she, yeah, so she went back to college then. I suppose it was kind of that we were all friends making the work together. Um, and then when we went to put on the Edinburgh Fringe version, um, I kind of developed it a lot. And I suppose when I mentioned it to people, there was a few people interested in auditioning for the role of Sinead, which was nice. So we actually held open auditions, which was lovely because, um, and we brought in an outside casting director to help us with the casting because I suppose, you know, we had a lot of really great people auditioning and we didn't want it to be like, we're just picking our friends or whatever. Yeah. And, and we did, we got so many amazing people auditioning and it was really, really fun to, you know, it was over Zoom to sit down and watch everybody's interpretations of Sinead. Uh, it was really exciting to kind of see your words brought to life in that way. Um, and then, yeah, so then we, we cast Ava, who is um, brilliant uh, and she's, you know, brought so much to the role. And um, yeah, it's really interesting to see people bringing new things to a role that you kind of didn't even think of when you were writing it a new dimension well, if you need to cast again i'll take all i'll be sinead this sounds fun i want to do it <laughs> that's it <laughs> everyone will get a chance <laughs> fantastic i'm looking forward to mine where can people find out more about you and the show online yeah so our instagram is uh obstreperous young ladies and um, that's the name of our kind of collective theater company um, so Obstreperous Young Ladies on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, our uh, tag is Obstreperous YL. Um, and you can find all of the info about the show there. And then, of course, on the Edinburgh Fringe website, you can buy tickets to the show, which begins on this Thursday, uh, the 12th. And it's online on demand. So you can watch it absolutely anytime you like, anywhere in the world. So it couldn't be easier. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. And I'll see you on the stage. Cheers. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks. Cashpoint Meat is streaming anytime you would like to watch it on the Edinburgh Fringe Player.